0: I want to minister for a little while this morning on a message called The Heartbeat of the Grace Man. That's the title that the Lord had given me. And as I was looking in the Bible, I thought the Gospel of John is really a powerful book. No other gospel incarnates, I believe, the heartbeat of Jesus more tenderly or more affectionately than the Gospel of John. I love his book. Eventually, I will work my way into that illustrious 21st chapter of John, but I want to undergird this message, first of all, by talking about these two covenants. I am passionate about the covenant, you know, because I, I see that so many people don't understand the covenant. If they could just get that one truth down, if you understood what covenant you were under and let go of that old covenant, I would tell you something, you would walk in victory. But I want to ask the question, what is the heartbeat of God? It's to know His love, and His love is expressed through grace. What is grace? Grace is not a what, really. Grace is a person. His name is Jesus. and when I read the Bible, I'm always looking for Jesus. Whether I'm in the Old Testament or the New Testament, it's always about where is Jesus at? With that revelation, I notice John is referred to as John the Beloved. John's name means grace. I find it interesting that John was the, the only one really at the foot of the cross. Grace was there for when grace was hung on the cross. And I find it interesting that John the Baptist, another grace man, was the one who introduced Christ to the the world. John's name means grace. The title of beloved, I think, is really neat, too, because the word beloved is made up of two words. It's made up of be and then loved. If you could just wrap your heart around that, be loved. I mean, that's really the message of God, isn't it? Just let me love you. Be loved. So John is grace, and he's called the beloved. The prefix be, B-E, actually means thoroughly or completely. So anytime you see be in front of a word, it means thoroughly or completely. So when you chain those two words together, you literally have thoroughly and completely loved. Let that marinate in your heart for a second, That just to know that we are thoroughly and completely loved. And so when you take John and then the Beloved and marry it all together, you literally have thoroughly and completely loved through grace." That's what the message of the Word is all about, that we are loved by His grace. I love that. So no matter what I've done, no matter what I've thought, no matter what I've said, no matter what I've become, I am thoroughly and completely loved through grace as a believer. I'm gonna say something, I don't think it's gonna have shock value to the people in this room that much, but one thing you have to understand is, this message goes way beyond this room. We are on the internet now, all of our messages end up at a website, at an internet site. So when any of us minister, one thing I come to the realization is, we are ministering to a population much larger than this room. As a believer, it's impossible to be separated from God and the love of God for any reason including sin. Don't turn off your dial now here, okay? But let me say it again. It's impossible to be separated from God or the love of God for any reason including sin. In Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39, we find these words, The Message translation. Starts off with so. What do you think? With God on our side like this, how can we lose? If God didn't hesitate to put everything on the line for us, embracing our condition and exposing Himself to the worst by sending His own Son, is there anything else He wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? And who would dare tangle with God by messing with one of God's chosen? Who would dare even to point a finger? The One who died for us, who was raised to life for us, is in the presence of god at this very moment sticking up for us i love that jesus is sticking up for me in other words i know the translations usually say he's interceding but i like that i had some bigger brothers too and i always liked it when my bigger brothers stuck up for me and that's what jesus is he's my big brother and so if i have a crazy moment with thought in word or in deed. If I found myself out in left field with no glove, or if I have what my wife likes to say, a lose your doggy brain moment, I would like to know the fact that Jesus is always at the right hand of the Father, sticking up for me. He's saying, Father, I, I know he's having a bad moment. Father, I know what's going through his mind. You do too, Daddy. But you know what, Daddy? I shed my blood for that man. I shed my blood for that girl. I shed my blood for that woman. Daddy, can you see him doing that? Oh, thank God that we've got someone that's interceding for us and is praying perfect prayers. Our prayers get kind of fuzzy sometimes and a little miscued and stuff like that, but Jesus is always praying perfect prayers. He said, do you think that anyone is going to be able to drive a wedge between us and Christ's love for us? Who's going to be able to drive a wedge between that? There is no way. Trouble can't do it. Hard times can't do it. Hatred can't do it. He says hunger can't do it. The culprit of most sin, believe it or not, is hunger. See, we are hungry for something that only Christ can satisfy. It could be a relationship. It could be fellowship. It could be uh, anything. We're hungry for something that only Jesus can satisfy, but we turn to someone else instead of Jesus or something else instead of Jesus. When Jesus was at his greatest temptation, it was in the wilderness, after he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And the Bible clearly says afterwards, he was hungry. And then the tempter came to him and said, if you really are the Son of God, command those stones to become bread. And that was a major temptation for Jesus, because they just got through saying, he was hungry. I know we all like to eat and we probably all have our favorite slice of pie, or cake, or ice cream, or something like that. Just imagine what yours is for a second. But imagine you're absolutely stuffed. It doesn't become a temptation anymore, does it? (laughs) It's only a temptation when you're hungry. And so as we go before the Lord in worship, as we go before the Lord in His Word, as we go before the Lord and let His promises just keep continually saturate our minds, I will tell you what it will do. It'll take away your hunger for other things, and it will increase your hunger for Jesus. He said, trouble can't do it, hard times can't do it, hatred can't do it, hunger can't do it. He says, homelessness can't do it. Not bullying threats, not backstabbing, not even the worst sins listed in Scripture. They kill us in cold blood because they hate you. We're sitting ducks, they pick us off one by one. None of this phases us because Jesus loves us. I'm absolutely convinced that nothing, nothing dead or living, angelic or demonic, today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love because of the way that Jesus, our master, has embraced us. I'm going to tell you something. I deal with naysayers all the time. When you start preaching this message of grace, I'm going to tell you something. They'll come out of the woodwork on you. And I've been preaching it for a long time. Long before I came to Triumphant Grace Ministries, I've been preaching about grace. And I'm going to tell you something, the naysayers aren't just the unbelievers. They're your your brothers and sisters in the Lord, too. They want to try to yank the slack out of you as well. Oh, but Brother Mark, haven't you read what it says in Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2? They'll pull Scripture on you. Haven't you read what it says in John chapter 9, verse 31? Yes, I've read those Scriptures, but I've read them through the lenses of grace, so I totally understand them. They've just been taken out of context. So I want to tackle those, uh, those scriptures that I just mentioned so that you're no longer intimidated by them. Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2 says, But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden His face from you, so that He will not hear you. But your iniquities have separated you from God. And in my imagination, as I was sitting in my chair yesterday, all I could see was like this gigantic umbilical cord going from me up to God. And I could see I get caught in iniquity and I could see this giant pair of scissors coming out of heaven and cutting the umbilical cord. There you go. Does that? Is that what the word says? It says your iniquities have separated you from God. He says your sins have hidden his face from you. You know, I see that all the time in stores and stuff like that. I see mothers getting mad at them, and fathers getting mad at their children, and they turn out, I'm not talking to you, and stuff like that. You know, that's torture, man. Can you imagine God actually turning His face from us, and we can't talk to Him? Or be in silence like He, he won't listen to us? My question is, is that Scripture true? Did God say that? Yes, that Scripture is absolutely true under the Old Covenant. But the wonderful truth is, we are no longer under the Old Covenant. The Bible says we're under a covenant with better promises. Let me tell you one of those promises. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12. It says, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more. Now, if you ever have someone come to you and tell you something about your sins separating you from God, you take them to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12, and you say, listen, My Bible says, I will be merciful to your unrighteousness, and your sins and your lawless deeds, or your sins and your iniquities, I will remember no more. So if you take those two Scriptures and you hang them out there, they say absolutely the opposite. One says, your sins are going to separate you from Me. The other one says, I don't remember any sin. (laughs) Which one is it? How could both of those statements be true? How could both of those Scriptures be true? It's easy. It's so easy. See, one was true under the Old Covenant, and one is true under the New Covenant. And God said to me yesterday, He says, say it like this, one was true in the day, the other one is true today. Just that simple. One is true in the day, one is true today. And Jesus says today is the day of salvation. So if we look at this Scripture in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12, and we look at it in context, because you always want to study the Bible in context, we see what God said. But why? Why did God say this? What was the context of what he was talking about? Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12 again, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more. Now watch the next verse. The very next verse says, By calling this covenant new, so right there, stop. You understand he's talking about he's not going to remember your iniquities anymore in the context of covenant. The very next verse, he says, by calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And that means everything that was in the old covenant is obsolete to the believer. So when you learn how to draw that line and say, I'm no longer under the old covenant, and so whatever the old covenant principles were, I am not under that old covenant. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Am I in the Bible? I'm in the Bible, right? Quit wrestling with religion and grab hold of the heartbeat of the grace man, which is the revelation that believers should have, and that is, God will be merciful to my unrighteousness, my sins and my lawless deeds, my iniquities. He will remember no more." Grab a hold of that truth. Get that scripture locked in your heart. So when the enemy comes and he knocks on your door and and tries to bring condemnation and guilt trips and shame and whatever it may be, you say, no, no, I'm not under that old covenant anymore. I'm under the new covenant and my lawless deeds, my iniquities, and my unrighteousness, he remembers no more. In preparation for this message, the Lord brought to my attention a 1970s uh, classics. uh, It was an animation and everybody in here has watched that movie. I know you have called Santa Claus is coming to town. And if you remember in that animation, that cartoon, if you will, the king, Burgermeister Meisterburger, Meister Burger, he's coming down the stairs and he's looking out and he sees all these children just having a, a wonderful time. They're playing with their toys, their jacks, their balls, whatever they're doing. And he thinks that's pretty cool until he takes one step and down he goes. And then the next scene, you see him inside in his bed, and the doctor's checking him out. He's got the thermometer in his mouth, and he's got the stethoscope on him, and he's checking him out. And he says, just as I suspected, he says, you have broken your funny bone. He said, my funny bone? He said, how did this happen? And one of his ten soldiers are standing right there, and he pulls out from behind him a wooden duck, a toy. And he says, a toy? A toy? He said, yeah, king, this is what you slipped on. You slipped on a toy. And so what the king does is he puts laws in place to ban all the toys, and it becomes the law of the land. And then the king, Meisterberger, jumps up on his bed, and he begins to sing that little song. It's a difficult responsibility that you accept from the number one lawmaker, me. Have it known throughout the land from sea to sea there'll be no more toy makers to the king. You know what they called that town? It's called somber town. Do you know what the word somber means? It means dull. It means drab. It means dingy. It means dark. It means gloomy. And I'm going to tell you something. If you try to live as a new covenant believer under the old covenant lifestyle, your life is going to be dull and dark and drab and gloomy. You can't live that way. And over the years, Santa Claus, is what he's trying to do is he's trying to bring gifts to children, but you know what he finds himself in? He finds himself in a constant battle with the law. He's trying to bring gifts. You know, it's the same thing that God is trying to do today. He's trying to bring grace gifts. There's so many people, I mean, there's denominations, don't believe you should be speaking in tongues. Tongues is very real. God is trying to bring that grace gift, but they're saying, no, we have a law that we want to go by. There's just so many different things that are going on in the body of Christ. Jesus is wanting to bring us gifts. If we'll just step out and we'll live under this new covenant, I will tell you something. You'll begin to tear down that infrastructure that's been built up, those strongholds of, of religion that have been built up and you'll find yourself freer and freer and freer. I'm freer and freer. And as time goes by, Kris Kringle takes a wife. <laughs> Are you starting to see the picture? Oh, Chris Kringle takes a wife. He takes a wife, just like Jesus did. See, there was a law in place, but then they sent Jesus. And they said, well, listen, we can't live under this law all the time. And he takes a bride. There's a narrator in this movie. And here's what he says right after that. It's right at the end of the, of the, uh, the movie. He says, as time went by, the Meisterburgers died off and fell out of power, and by and by, the good people realized how silly the laws were. Well, everybody had a wonderful laugh and then forgot all about them. And I just felt the Holy Spirit say, that's what believers need to do. You just need to have a wonderful laugh one time and then forget about always trying to be right with God based upon following and obeying a bunch of laws. We're not under the law, we're under grace. Listen friends, there is one way to be right with God. One way to be saved, and His name is Jesus. The Bible declares in Acts 4.12, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved except the name of Jesus. And Jesus said in John 14.6, He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me. I want to tell you something. You want to hear the heartbeat of the grace man? Do like John did and just lay your head against his bosom one time, and that bosom is the bosom of grace. That's the heartbeat of grace now anytime i talk like this i always want to make sure i don't misrepresent grace i am not suggesting that we live in sin the bible says in romans chapter 6 very clearly what shall i sin the question is asked so that grace may abound no the apostle paul says i've died to sin so you don't go out and live in it just because you can it doesn't change your eternal destiny but it will wreck your destiny here I'm not suggesting you live in sin. If you see the story, it's in Luke chapter 10 about the Good Samaritan. The Bible says a man is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he falls into the hands of thieves, robbers, if you will, and they beat him, and they strip him, and they leave him half dead beside the road. Well, when I was looking at that, I thought, well, what do you mean half dead? Is it the left side that's dead, or the right side? Is it from the waist up, is it from the waist down? What part of you is half dead? Well friends, we consist of three components. We have a spirit, a soul, and a body. Every believer is fully alive in their spirit. There is no death in there. There is no darkness in there. There's no drab in there. There's nothing gloomy in your spirit, but it's in our soul. It's in our soul. And as we begin to marry the God's word, this grace message with our soul, I'm gonna tell you something. It will start to push out those gloomy days. It will start to push back all those forces of darkness. Oh, man, the emphasis in living for Christ is to live by the Spirit. The emphasis in living for Christ is not rules. The emphasis for living for Christ is by the Spirit. If we don't live by the Spirit, what happens is we always have a default mechanism, and we'll always default back to a list of do. This is what I need to do. This is what I've got to do. We'll always default back to that, and it drives us crazy. It's rules without relationship. This is why there are so many believers, and listen, they're alive in their spirit, but they're half dead in other areas of their life. That's because in John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus made an amazing statement. He said, the thief cometh not but for to kill, steal, and destroy, and then comma. He said, but I have come that you might have life and life more abundantly. Which section of that scripture, part A or part B, do you want to live by? Part B, right? I want to live life more abundantly. And when he uses this word life, it's the word Zoe in the Greek. It means the God kind of life. It doesn't mean heaven. There's a different word for heaven. It literally means the God kind of life. It's the life that I can live now. I'm living the Zoe life now. I believe you're living the Zoe life now. Jesus said, this is the kind of life I want you to live. And if you don't live the Zoe kind of life, what's going to happen is you're going to default back over here where the thief cometh to kill steal, and destroy, which is a picture of who was on the road when that man was going from Jerusalem down to Jericho. In John chapter 9, verse 31, the Bible says, we know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does His will. In the first few years I got saved, that scripture used to intimidate me a little bit. It doesn't scare me a bit. It's like the shadow of a monster. What is it going to do to you, really? Shadow can't do anything to you. Yeah, if you read it in context, you'll find this scripture is not written to the believers, it's not written to the church, it's written to unbelievers. And God does not hear sinners when they pray. He listens to the godly person who does His will. Sinning does not make me a sinner any more than if I visit the White House, it makes me the president. I mean, what if I went to the White House and I even sat behind the oval table, man, in the president's spot? Would it make me the president of the United States? Of course not! SINNING DOES NOT MAKE ME A SINNER ANY MORE THAN THAT WOULD HAPPEN. SEE, WE HAVE A BETTER PROMISE. IN EPHESIANS chapter 2, BEGINNING AT VERSE 1, IT SAYS THIS, AS FOR YOU, YOU WERE DEAD IN YOUR TRANSGRESSIONS AND SINS. DID YOU NOTICE IT SAID, YOU WERE DEAD IN YOUR TRANSGRESSIONS AND SINS? IN WHICH YOU USED TO LIVE, AND WHEN YOU FOLLOWED THE WAYS OF THIS WORLD, AND OF THE RULER OF THE KINGDOM OF THE AIR, THE SPIRIT WHO IS NOW AT WORK IN THOSE WHO ARE DISOBEDIENT. ALL OF US LIVED AMONG THEM AT ONE TIME, GRATIFYING THE CRAVINGS OF OUR FLESH, and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But, my former pastor used to tell me the but is the eraser. So anytime you see a but, you just kind of erase everything before that and forget about concentrating on that and just say, what does it say now? It says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. I want you to remember that. He seated us with Christ in heavenly realms in order that in the coming ages, He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Let me just summarize what I've just said. God has seated us in heavenly places in Christ. Now, does it get any more godly than that? Can you get any more sanctified than that? Can you get any more righteous? You happen to be sitting next to God right now, and you're seated inside His Son. There's no separate chair for you and me. We're in Christ. Is that what the Scripture said? It says, we have been seated with Him in Christ, in heavenly places. Can it get any more godly than that? You think God's going to let trash sit next to Him in heaven? No, because he never sees us that way. Because we've been transformed; we have Christ's nature. Oh, I'm just getting happy all by myself. We've got Christ's nature, and so how could it be that he could not hear my prayers when I pray? You know what? Roll that thought for a second over into James chapter five verse sixteen. You see, John chapter nine thirty one says God does not hear my prayers when I, if I sin, but James chapter five verse sixteen says that the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. It is powerful, the Bible says, and it is effective. Now, both of those things can't be true. God can't hear my prayers if I just happen to mess up and sin. And my prayers are effective and powerful. They can't both be true. Well, one is for the unbeliever one is for the believer. And I'm seated with Christ in heavenly places. And that really thrills me. That gets me really happy. Oh, man, I'm telling you, I just feel like clapping on the inside of me right now. I do rejoice, and I just feel like running around this building right now. It makes me happy to know this. Let me ask you this. Do you want to live frustrated? Do you want to live defeated? (laughs) Do you want to live with a declaration that God's Word doesn't work? And friends, I'm going to tell you something. Over the years, I have seen believers say, God's Word doesn't work. I say, no, quit talking like that. God's Word always works. There's something wrong with you or your understanding or me or my understanding, but God's Word always works. If you want to live defeated, you want to live frustrated, and you want to live with a lifestyle testimony of God's Word does not work, I'm going to tell you a good way to do it. Live a new covenant life based upon old covenant principles. You'll live a defeated, frustrated life that doesn't work. I want you to get this picture in your head. Imagine me walking up to my new house and trying to open the door with the keys from my former house. I'm going to be defeated, ain't I? I'm going to be frustrated. Even if the key goes in the lock, it's not moving. I'm going to be frustrated. That's precisely what it means. If you're living a new covenant life and as a believer, we're all under the new covenant. But if you have this mentality of rules and rules and laws and obeying the Ten Commandments, I'm not saying to break them, but we don't get right obeying the Ten Commandments. Imagine a banker who's been the banker for 20 years at First National Bank, and then all of a sudden he he moves over to First Federal Bank, and he wants to go to the vault, but he wants to use the combination from the former bank. He's going to be frustrated. He can turn that tumbler all day long, and it won't do anything. He's going to feel defeated, isn't he? That's what Jesus was getting at when he says, you're trying to put new wine in old wineskins. Listen, either get some old wine and put it in old wineskins, or get some new wine and put it in new wineskins. You can't put it one in the other. He said, don't mix these things. The mixtures of covenants, when you start mixing the old covenant into a new covenant believer's (laughs) life, I'm going to tell you, how are you going to live? Frustrated, defeated, and you're going to walk around with a testimony that God's word doesn't work. I'm going to tell you something. There's an ocean of people out there that are watching you, and they're watching me, and they're saying, really? Show me that his word works. Show me that your life is really connected to him. Show me that it makes he's really making a difference in your life. And I believe that's what Jesus was getting at in Matthew chapter 16, verse 19, when he said to Peter, he said, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. What was he saying? Peter was a Jew. He was saying, Peter, the only system you're familiar with is the system of the law. I'm going to give you a new set of keys, Peter. And the kingdom is a kingdom of grace because the king is here now. I am the king and the dome is for the dominion. I am the king in this dominion and I am the kingdom of grace. I'm going to give you a new set of keys to the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And it's right here. It's not just heaven. It's right here. Are you getting that? Work-centered religion is what some people like to operate in. I like to operate in rest-centered relationship. But I'm going to tell you something. If you have an off moment, if you have a bad hair day, like Peter did, I'm going to tell you something, that covenant remains in place, no matter what you've done. That covenant remains in place. In John chapter 13, you'll see Jesus addressing Peter, letting him know you're going to fail. He says, My children, I will be with you only a little longer, he's talking to his disciples. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you." Oh, what's the command going to be, Jesus? Love one another. (laughs) As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, by this love, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. I want to tell you something, grace allows us to love people in the midst of unlovable moments. Under the law, it was eye for eye, and it was tooth for tooth. Man, you did something to me, I'm coming after you. That's not the way love works, though. It's not the way grace works. Law, totally different operating system. Grace, totally different. Oh, man. Peter says, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now. But you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you, Peter said. Then Jesus answered, Will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will have denied me three times. That actually came true, didn't it? For Peter, he did. There's no way for us to know what Peter felt. I think we can all say there's been a time in our life where we haven't done that, we haven't denied Jesus, but... There's been other condemning moments and stuff like that. Peter failed just as Jesus said he would. And so what happens is, is Jesus has now been crucified. He's been raised from the dead. He's already visited the disciples on a couple of occasions. And he's about to meet them for the third time since he's been raised from the dead. My title above John 21, no matter which Bible I look at, it almost always says Peter reinstated. I don't know so much if it was Peter reinstated as it was Peter reminded. Peter reminded of the goodness and the grace of Jesus. But in John chapter 21, beginning at verse 1, we find these words. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathanael from Cana in Galilee, the two sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going fishing, Simon Peter said, and they said, we're going with you. So they went and climbed into a boat, the Bible says, and they went out fishing, but that night they caught nothing. I asked the Lord, I said, Lord, why did Peter go back fishing again? You know, I mean, I was just meditating on that, really, and the only thing I could really feel in my spirit was, is that he was trying to silence the rooster that was crowing on the inside of him because he was so full of condemnation. He had just failed God so miserably, and he just couldn't get the rooster out of his head. And sometimes what happens is, is when we feel like we've failed God, what happens is we want to default back to a system of works. We can't believe that grace is that good. I've got to contribute somehow. I've got to show you my worth. Hey guys, I'm a fisherman. Is there anything wrong with going fishing? Is there anything inherently wrong with him returning to fishing? Only from the standpoint that Jesus called him out of that. In Matthew chapter 4, he walked by him, and he was mending his net, and he said, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. And so sometimes I think what happens is that Peter knew, I'm a good fisherman. I can show these guys, you know, I can still do stuff. I'm not a total failure. (laughs) Except he was wrong that night, wasn't he? It just amplified because now he's in the flesh. He's trying to work. He's trying to make it happen. That's what the law does. It makes you work. makes you go get jobs. Hidden in those first three scriptures is something very amazing that I really didn't quite see until just a couple of days ago. It's a snapshot of the two covenants and the work of grace in those three scriptures. You didn't catch it. Simon Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, Nathanael from Canaan and Galilee, and the two sons of Zebedee all went fishing, and two other disciples that are not named. You don't see the covenants because you're not looking at what below their names. When you start looking below their names, it's, it's just so easy to see. Peter's name means stone. The very next disciple that's named is Thomas, and his name means twin. I want you to think about where I'm going with this thing now. Twin stones, you get it? Get the picture? That's exactly what Moses carved out on Mount Sinai when God said, I'm going to write the Ten Commandments, and the Bible says he hewed out two tablets of stone. You see the picture developing now? The tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments, the Bible says, are a ministry of condemnation. They're a ministry of death. And religious people are saying, you know what? If we just preach more about the Ten Commandments, if we just preach about the Ten Commandments, What they're really getting at when they call it the ministry of condemnation, what it will do is it will condemn your flesh. That's not biblical. All you got to do is turn to Romans chapter 7, and the Bible says it doesn't kill the flesh, it incites it. It incites the flesh. It intensifies the lust of the flesh. I'll never forget this. Uh, It was probably 25 years ago. I used to love watching Candid Camera, and there was this episode of one of the Candid Camera people came into a, a classroom a kindergartner classroom and one just one at a time was a little kindergartner there and they sat him down at that little table and there was a box in the middle with a little lid on it and he kind of interviewed that little kid and at some point in time he said all right now he said I got to go out of the room for two or three minutes he said I'm going to be gone for two or three minutes but when I'm gone do not look in that box do not look in that box he walks out of the room of course the cameras are still rolling that little kid's looking around to see who's watching him Nobody wants, wa- he, he can't help himself. Now, if he wouldn't have said anything about the box, he probably wouldn't have looked in the box. That's what rules do, they incite you to break them. When I was up north on vacation years ago, man, I went to an, a wax, kind of this like old Indian store. There was an Indian guy, he was a wax figure, you know. I mean, he looked so real, I, I'm like, I got down, I started looking at him, I'm like, are you sure this isn't a real guy sitting here? I mean, so real. And he's holding a sign here that says, do not touch. And the moment my eyes went down and saw that do not touch, I'm not kidding you. I started to reach out to touch that Indian. And there was an Indian guy hiding behind some clothes over there. And he's like, huh. I'm like, oh, no, 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 I don't. The law incites you to sin. It can't help you. It's to show you that you're ultimately a failure if you're trying to live that way. As a believer or an unbeliever, you cannot live by that law. It's not the law that keeps us from sinning. It's knowing the heartbeat of the grace man. When you understand his heart, when you understand his goodness, when you understand his faithfulness, when you start to receive his love and his mercy, which is new every day, I want to tell you something, that will keep you from sinning. Peter's name is Stone, Thomas's name is Twin. Let's hop over to Nathaniel for a moment. We'll come back, and we'll get Nathaniel in a second. The other two disciples that are mentioned are the sons of Zebedee. Who are they? James and John. James' name comes from the Hebrew name Jacob, which means supplanter. Or another way to say it, it literally means to replace. To replace. What does John's name mean? Grace. Do you see what has been said so far just in their names? The stone, the law, the law has been replaced by grace. The Old Covenant was a covenant of the Ten Commandments written on tablets of stone. The New Covenant is a covenant of grace. What does Nathanael's name mean? Nathanael's name literally means the gift of God. Now, do you see the picture even brighter now? The gift of God. What is the gift of God? According to Romans chapter 5, the gift of God is grace righteousness by faith alone. By faith alone. We're saying the twin stones, the law has been replaced by grace through the gift of God. And I thought, Lord, why mention two other disciples and not tell us who they are? We don't know who they were. It says plus two other disciples. And I just felt the Holy Spirit say yesterday, do you really need anything other than that? Do you really need to know anything other than the law has been replaced by grace? Is there something you really want to add to that through the gift of God? Is there really anything you want to add to that? (laughs) No, they're not really. There you go. Neither do I. I knew exactly what I was doing when I wrote the Word. The Bible says they fished all night long and caught nothing. You know why they caught nothing? Because they had forgotten what Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 5. He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. But in Philippians 4, four, thirteen, 13, He says, with me, you can do all things. Good news, huh? I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. I love this next thing. It comes up in verse four. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. I'm gonna encourage you when you read your Bible, when you study your Bible to look at every single word. You'll be surprised sometimes which words really have the life for that moment. I'm gonna read that scripture again. I'm gonna tell you which word jumped out at me. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore But the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. It's the word stood. It comes from the Greek word histemi, H-I-S-T-E-M-I, histemi. It literally means to stand firm, immovable, established, and covenant. Whoa! Man, Jesus stood firm, immovable, established, and in covenant, perfect covenant with the Father. I was just relishing, I just enjoying what I was learning and seeing. I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, would you like to see the first time that word stood comes up in the New Testament? I said, absolutely. You hear me talk about the law of first mention. Well, you don't get very far into the New Testament, and that word pops up, histemi. Comes up in Matthew chapter 2, verse nine. That's the first place it's, it's used. What I would like to do is I always like to say, Will it point to Jesus, someone how I really care about? Will it point to God? Will it point to grace? Will it point to his love? Matthew chapter 2 verse 9. And when the wise men had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they had saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. Who is that young child? <laughs> That's Jesus. I want to tell you why this excites me so much. Because I know for a fact that Jesus himself said, "I am the alpha and I am the Omega. I am the beginning, and I am the end. I am the first and the last. The very first time that word histami stood is used in the New Testament, there is a spotlight that's beaming down from heaven on a newborn heartbeat of the grace man. Very first time. The last time it's used in the Gospels is when Jesus is standing on the shore. You see the Alpha and the Omega in the Gospels there. And the thing that blesses me is I understand that my covenant, from beginning to end, has always been about Jesus. It's never been about me. My covenant has always been about Jesus. And then he called to them. He says, friends, do you love that? This is the first word out of Jesus's mouth. Friends, have you caught any fish? Are you kidding me? These guys just deserted you, Jesus. Friends, friends. Oh, we used to sing a song at my former church called, I am a friend of God. Who am I? It comes out of Psalm chapter 8, verse 4. Who am I that you are mindful of me, that you hear me when I call? Is it true that you are thinking of me, how you love me? It's amazing. It's amazing. I am a friend of God. I am a friend of God. I am a friend of God. He calls me friend. And then it just keeps going over. Who am I? Oh, it just keeps going over. You don't, It doesn't have any other words to it. Just over and over. That's all you need to know. You're a friend of God. You say, Mark, how do I become a friend of God? You already are. You don't need to try to work at me to become a, a friend of God. You already are. Let me tell you how the covenants connected with the friend. In James chapter 2, verse 23, And the scripture was fulfilled which saith Abraham believed God, And it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. A British publication once offered a prize for the best definition of a friend. The winning definition read like this. It says, a friend is the one who comes in when the whole world has gone out. That's Jesus for you. That's Jesus for you. When the whole world will desert you. He's the one that comes in. I find this amazing that Jesus knew exactly along the shoreline where they were going to be coming in at. And he knew exactly what time to start the food when he couldn't even see them yet. They were so far out. I mean, it doesn't take long to fry fish. A couple of minutes on each side, it's done. And it was already cooked and waiting for him when he came in. That's amazing, isn't it? I don't know where he got the bread and where he got the fish yet. That just all cool by itself. I don't know. So he asked them, friends, have you caught any fish? No, they answered. He he said, throw your net to the right side of the boat and you will find some. That is one of the scriptures, by the way, that Triumphant Grace Ministries was birthed on when the Lord told us a few years ago, you will cast your net to the right side of the boat. And believe me, if you look at a map, it's definitely to the right side of the boat. Amen. It's definitely the right side of the boat. Success and failure are not measured by the width of the ship. They are measured by the word of the Savior. He said, cast your net. They've been casting all day and all night. He said, cast your net to the right side of the boat, and it was so filled with fish they couldn't even hardly haul it in. Oh, man. The Bible says when they did, they were unable to haul the net because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. Who else could it be? As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, "'It is the Lord,' he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water.'" I'm telling you what, man, condemnation will strip you, but who is he going to right now? He's going to the Lord, just to be reminded, "'You're righteous, Peter.'" The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about 100 yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. He's got some energy. The Bible says these are large fish. There's 153. Large fish, man, come on. A two pound fish is not a large fish. If it's only two pounds, you've got over 300 pounds of fish. And the Bible says the other disciples didn't, didn't even help him. Peter just dragged the whole thing ashore. I'm telling you, he's been re-energized. The Bible says the joy of the Lord is my strength. You can do anything. I can do all things through Christ because He strengthens me. So Simon climbed back into the boat. Do you notice it just says Simon climbed into the boat, back in the boat, and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. And here's what I heard the Lord say to me. The net represents grace. The essence of this grace net is not one fish was lost. The essence of it in the spiritual realm is not one believer will be lost. Not one soul will be lost because a grace net has no holes for you to slip through. All the little holes are just to filter out all the junk, but you can't go through those little holes. That's awesome, isn't it? 153 fish. I had to, I've asked myself this for years. Lord, how would they know how many fish there are? Are you kidding me? I mean, it's not even a round number. They don't say about 100, about 200. They said 153. That means they had to have counted them. Jesus didn't order them to count them. You know, there's just times in life we get distracted. I mean, here you are with Jesus. Jesus, you haven't seen Him in a few days. He's made you fish and bread. And they're like, whoa, look at all those fish. Let's let's count them. Are you kidding me? Have you ever felt yourself that way? You're praying and all of a sudden your mind's drifting off on something you've got to do next week. You get distracted at times. Jesus understands we get distracted. It's no big deal. He didn't reprimand them for counting the fish. He just let them go ahead and count them. How many of you got, John? How many of you got, Jake? Nathaniel, what's in your pile? Let's add them all together. There's 153. Whoa, that's a lot of fish. I don't know what the significance of 153 is. Supposedly, there's 153 miracles in the Bible. I don't know that to be true. It could be. But if we just look at the individual numbers one time, the one speaks of oneness with Christ. The five speaks of grace. And the three speaks of completeness. That's what a three means in the Bible. It always talks about completeness. And so, you can see when we become one with Christ through grace, we become complete. It is a finished work. There's nothing left. The reason that 153 is in there for, is for our buildup, for our edification. I don't know if that's what he had in mind, but in the simplest form, that's what it means. You are one with Christ through grace. You are complete. Quit trying to work your way. Quit trying to obey all these laws and rules to get closer to me. You're already one with me. He said that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, when he said, He that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. We are one with Christ. In John chapter 17, when he's praying that awesome, long prayer, the whole chapter of John 17 is about Jesus praying a prayer. He prays for himself. He prays for his disciples. He prays for all believers. But in the part where he's praying for his disciples, he's saying, I'm praying that you might be one with one another, one with each other, just as I am one with my Father. He's always about oneness. JESUS SAID TO THEM, COME AND HAVE BREAKFAST. NONE OF THE DISCIPLES DARED ASK HIM, WHO ARE YOU? THEY KNEW IT WAS THE LORD. JESUS CAME AND TOOK THE BREAD AND GAVE IT TO THEM AND DID THE SAME THING WITH THE FISH. THIS WAS NOW THE THIRD TIME THAT JESUS HAD APPEARED TO HIS DISCIPLES AFTER HE HAD BEEN RAISED FROM THE DEAD. WHEN THEY HAD FINISHED EATING, I IMAGINE A SILENCE FELL, JUST LIKE I HEAR RIGHT NOW. JESUS SAID TO SIMON PETER, HE SINGLED HIM OUT. HE DOESN'T CALL HIM SIMON PETER. He calls him Simon, son of John. What is he saying? The name Simon literally means one who has heard. Simon, son of John. John means grace. He's literally saying to him, you're the one who's heard the son of grace. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you think Jesus knew whether or not Peter loved him? Of course he did. Because it stands to reason if he doesn't know if Peter loves him or not, he won't know if Peter's telling the truth or not when he does tell him. Yes, he knew him. He wanted Peter to get in the habit of saying, I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. Do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord. Good answer. He said, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. You know what lambs are? They're baby sheep. They're people that have just come into the flock. They don't know anything. He said, feed my lambs. And again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, you who has heard the message of grace, one who has heard from the son of grace, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep, which literally means shepherd my sheep. That's why we've come to Kenosha. We've come to Kenosha to take care of his lambs, and we've come to shepherd his sheep. Don't you ever forget it. That's why we come. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, one who has heard from the Son of Grace, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, You know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. And I had to ask the question, God, how do you feed lambs, baby sheep, and how do you feed the more mature sheep at the same time? It's a good question, isn't it? That'd be like having a a school classroom and you've got kindergartners in there and 12th graders, seniors. How can you teach when you have that much of an age difference and comprehension difference? That's because there is a universal message. It's the message of God's grace. It's no respecter of age, and it's one size that fits all. It's God's grace and God's love. I'm going to tell you something. You can take little bitty lambs, people that just got saved last week, and you take people who have been in the house of God for 100 years, and I'm going to tell you something. You teach that message of God's love and God's grace. I'm going to tell you something. That's how you do what Jesus asked him to do. He was pointing him to a specific message, love. 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 Everybody wants to be loved. Everybody wants to be loved. I believe that Jesus was saying to Simon, son of John, one who has heard from the Son of Grace, if you want to impact the world in your ministry, then you're going to have to get in the habit of telling people, I love you and you love me. Can you imagine what this did to Peter's heart? I can hear Jamie Slocum's song playing in the background right now as Peter says, This is the life I've always wanted. To know the Prince of Peace. To feel my faith restored as your grace surrounds me. This is a day of new beginnings. This is where my freedom starts. Now death has lost its sting. And Jesus, how can I thank you just to know, just to know that you love me? Gives me hope to carry on. What can this world do to me just to know, just to know that you love me? Upon all these roads I've traveled on, when all I have is gone, I confess my dependence on you. You see, that's what the whole message is about. The whole message is about is always being dependent upon grace, being dependent upon God. It's not about if I follow this checklist, these rules, these laws, I'm going to be right. No, it's about depending on Christ. You see, friends, the gospel of grace was never really about how much we love God. The gospel of grace is about how much God loves us. It's about how much God loves us. Friends, His love for us was, His love for us is, and His love for us will always be the heartbeat of the grace man. Amen. You received that word today? Amen. Father, we just thank you for your great grace. We see it displayed so incredibly. There was no lecture to the disciples. There was lunch. What an amazing God. What a heartbeat, Jesus. What a heartbeat of love and grace. And Father, cause your people, the people that are beyond this room that will hear this word, cause them to receive. They cannot deny the truth. There's been a new change. There's been a change in the go- the gospel of grace. The dispensation of grace has overtaken this law and forced it out. Why would we want to live under that system? Jesus, I love you. I want to declare to the whole world, I love you. I said I love you, and I mean it in Jesus' name. But I want to thank you beyond that, that you love me. You so loved me that you gave me Jesus, the grace man. Father, I bless your people in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, amen.